If you're an author or plan to be one, get excited because this podcast is for you. Book Marketing Mentors is the only podcast dedicated to helping you successfully market and sell your book. If you're ready for empowering conversations with successful marketing mavens, then grab a coffee or tea and listen in to your host, international best-selling author, Susan Friedman. Welcome to Book Marketing Mentors, the weekly podcast where you learn proven strategies, tools, ideas, and tips from the masters. Every week, I introduce you to a marketing master who will share their expertise to help you market and sell more books. Today, my special guest is an internationally recognized expert on strategic business relationships. David Knorr has helped thousands of business leaders from around the globe leverage his practical, pragmatic insights that highlight the power of relationships to build companies, brands, and business. A thought leader, best-selling author, and keynote speaker, David serves as a trusted advisor to global clients and coaches, corporate leaders, and rising entrepreneurs. He's the author of 10 books translated into eight languages, including his bestsellers, Co-Create, and Relationship Economics as well as his upcoming book, Curve Benders. David's unique insights have been featured in a variety of prominent publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Fast Company, Huffington Post Business, Entrepreneur, and many more. David and I met many years ago through the National Speakers Association, and it's always a pleasure to welcome people who I've known for many years. So David, Thank you for being this week's guest expert and mentor. Susan, it is uh, good to be with you. David, I'm really curious about your new book, Curve Benders. Tell us a little about it and what messages it might offer our listeners. Probably like a lot of your authors, books for me often begin with a question, of a kind of a burning question that I may see in one client or one scenario or one industry or I begin to get really curious about that topic. And at some point, you've read enough, you've researched enough, you've consulted, spoken enough about an idea that you feel like you have something to share. And with Curvebenders, I've been curious about, I have two teenagers, which makes me a saint to begin with, but I'm really curious about how they interact with technology, how they learn, how they work, how they grow, how they get things done. So I've been fascinated by this idea of future of work for several years. And of course, my area of expertise, my wheelhouse has been, you know, this idea of strategic relationships. So I said at this nexus of the, let's say the next two decades in how we work, how we play, how we live, how we give, in essence, in the future of life, I believe we're going to have to continue to learn and grow personally and professionally to remain relevant. So I have elderly parents. Mom is all over technology and laptops and tablets and Skype and Facebook. And so she can keep up with the grandkids. And my dad doesn't want anything to do with any of it. And you can't help but see him become less and less relevant in kind of what happens all around us on a daily basis. Now, that's a personal example, but you also see that in companies where, and it's not an age thing generationally and mindset-wise, number of workers are being left behind. And this digital divide is getting wider on a daily basis. So the premise is, I believe, certain relationships come into our lives 
that can dramatically accelerate our ability to learn, grow, and remain relevant. And when you do that, prosperity and experiences, prosperity in your economic model and financial model, I believe will come as long as you remain relevant. So that's what I've been researching. I have six grad students doing social science research for me. I've got a podcast. I'm doing interviews and uh, aggressively writing this book, and it'll be released in the fall. Excellent. That sounds so exciting. I have to tell you that I recently interviewed an Aviva publishing author, Scott Scanlon, who wrote a book called The Relevance Gap. I think that this fits in very nicely with what you shared, and I'd like to link that podcast interview in the show notes. David, I know that you have some very strong ideas about how to use your book for marketing purposes. Talk to us more about that. Sure. So again, if your authors, if your audience agrees with this notion, believes that we're all fundamentally in the ideas business, you have to keep those ideas fresh to remain relevant. So number one, philosophically, and even through our involvement with the National Speaker Association, I always believed an expert first, a advisor, speaker, coach, mentor, trainer, author, a distant second. First and foremost, I pride myself in going deep and wide in my wheelhouse, in my area of expertise. So number one, expert first, author, distant second. Number two, we have to, and I learned this from Alan Weiss, you could be brilliant in what you do. If you're a well-kept secret, you're not helping yourself. You're not helping your clients. So you have to, by definition, put your body of work out there. And that's where I believe articles and blogs and podcasts and these things come into play is putting your ideas out there. And it does three things. One, it really builds your credibility as a subject matter expert in that area. Two, it creates, it reinforces your brand equity, your value in the market, And three, hopefully it creates market gravity or what Alan calls kind of market pull. Years ago, as most of us do, I created a set of brochures and created a set of marketing material and here's all of our capabilities. And you know what? I spent 10 grand printing these brochures and they sat here in boxes. Because most of us, when we get a brochure, it goes in one of places. Either it goes in a square file or it goes in the round file. But people are likely to discard that marketing material, whereas what I found out with books, and I started with a booklet, I did a six-by-nine booklet, self-published it myself, they held on to it, and they referenced it because it was practical and it was pragmatic. And I started including it with my speaking and my coaching and my workshops, and it became an enabler of me sharing those ideas, more importantly, helping others implement my ideas. So now I don't just ship or toss a book over the wall. When I go, I'm going to go see an executive this afternoon. I take him a copy of one of my books and having done my due diligence on that company, on that industry, on that executive and maybe his or her team, I actually highlight key sections of the books and I put these note cards that we've printed in different sections and I put little sticker notes of, listen, I read that this may be a challenge for you, here's a section you may want to look. So I literally leverage it as a tool to reinforce my credibility, my knowledge, my expertise in this area, to create a relationship on-ramp, create a conversation around that topic that would be very relevant to that prospective client you want to engage. 
I absolutely love the idea of doing due diligence before you go and visit a client. David, talk to us more about that, how you actually go about doing that company research. How deep do you go? And what kind of information are you looking to find out? Think of it as a good, better, best. That's one way to think of it. Number one, relationships are between individuals, not business cards or logos or buildings. So I always begin with the individual. Now, obviously, the tools that we have access to today, they weren't nearly as prevalent several years ago. So I start with a Google search and I find them on LinkedIn. And if they're active on various social networks, I actually look at what are they tweeting about? Believe it or not, one of my friends jokingly calls it digital stalking. And again, I'm not doing this right before I leave for a meeting. I do this days and hopefully weeks in advance. And you see patterns, you see what they're proud of and the company information they share and their philanthropic causes they're passionate about. And all of these become parts of the puzzle and understanding the person, are they analytical? Are they more on the creative side? Are they more the structured process planning side? Or are they more the relational side? Because if what I learned was if I'm relational and I walk into someone who's highly analytical, it's going to be a mismatch, right? I want to find out about their family and how are the holidays and what do they do on vacation? And they're like, listen, let's get down to the technical and analytical and logical. And it just, it's not going to go well. Whereas if you do your due diligence on the individual first, you can more appropriately align your styles. That's number one. Number two, then I kind of go from that micro to more macro. I do some homework on the company. We subscribe to a couple of different tools. Capital IQ is one. But again, you can also do a lot of, and that's more on the more expensive side. There's a lot of free tools. There are tools for corporations. There are tools for associations. But I do my homework on the company. And then I go one level higher and I do a little bit of digging on the industry. What are the industry norms? What's the competitive landscape like? Are these guys winning market share? Are they losing market share? If that relationship is important to me, it's worth doing well. It's worth doing that level of due diligence so you walk in and you're sufficiently prepared for an intelligent, engaging conversation. My favorite meetings with these prospective clients is that in an hour, 50 minutes of it is about them. Because what I've learned is you can certainly convey your credibility through the questions you ask, not necessarily the solutions you provide. I completely agree that it's all about the questions you ask because it's the conversation. You've got to get the other person talking and then they think you're brilliant, especially when they do all the talking. Yeah, absolutely. And it also shows that you're serious, right? This isn't an afterthought. You're thoughtful in your preparation. And and I've always believed in, you know, again, my clients are these large enterprises and you cannot show up unprepared for these meetings. You cannot show up and try to wing it. You say a lot about who you are and again, the due diligence you've done and the types of questions you ask. So I often walk in with, so I have And believe it or not, I'm I'm not talking about 50 questions, right? It's not an inquisition. It's, listen, I read this. Tell me more about that. Or tell me what your answer is to this competitive issue. Or tell me if you're FedEx, you know, the bottom of your business just fell out because Amazon launched their own, you know, massive shipping business. And what are you doing to replace that revenue? And you walk in with intelligent questions that demonstrate you've done your homework in how to engage them and about them and their business. 
And that helps give you that credibility, as you say, as that thought leader, because you've taken the time to think through their issues. I was fascinated in writing the last book, Co-Create, that hotels call us a guest. And I've got several hospitality clients, and I'm just fascinated by that idea because last time I checked, I'm in that hotel one night in a week. So in many ways, they're a guest in my journey. If you change that perspective, would you do things differently? Would you ask different questions? Would you engage your audience differently? And again, let me stick to that example and give you a a more specific one. What do most hotels ask us when we're leaving their property? When you're checking out, what do most people hotels ask you? Did you have a good experience? Right. Would they ask, you know, how was your stay? Right. Mm-hmm. And most of us, most of us, you know, not wanting to be confrontational, even though, if, you know, we had problems. We, we typically say it was fine. Did that hotel get any value from our kind of blanket statement of fine? And I was, none. Right. None. And now extrapolate that. Right. How many guests stay in a hotel in a typical month? If I just give you a round number of thousand, that's a thousand opportunities that you're missing out on because of the question you're asking. What if you were to just change that one question and ask, what's the one thing we could have done to improve your experience or enhance your experience? And now you're giving them permission to share. You're likely to get, you know, some people are going to say nothing, everything was fine, and that's great. Others are going to say, you know what? the TV was too loud or it didn't work or the window or whatever the case may be, at least you're getting data points. So I want your authors to think about this. The book should never be about us. The book should always be how will our relationships be better off because of us? Again, I want to make this practical for curve benders. A lot of authors wait to get out and speak about their book till after the book comes out. I've already booked 22 speaking engagements this year, and the book won't be out till this fall. So I'm out speaking about a book that in all candor, Susan, in full transparency, I haven't written yet. But what better way to learn what resonates with your audience? What do they like? What don't they like? I've always said I learn more about my books after the book comes out. So why not get out and talk about, well, I don't want to share details on my, listen, There are no new ideas. There are no new challenges. There are no new, the only new ideas are the ones you haven't thought of, right? So why not get out and talk about it before you actually write and publish it, number one. Number two, why not invite, create an environment and invite others into topics you're interested in, you're passionate about, and continue to learn through their lens, through their experiences, through their journey. I love the fact that you haven't written your book yet. That's absolutely brilliant. It's a whole different perspective on writing books, especially as you're talking about it and you're getting paid, but for something that you haven't even written yet. Two steps further. Number one, I'm including copies of the book with most of these speaking engagements. Now I have a backlog of pre-orders going into the pub date, right? Number one. Number two, I'm inviting them into the tent, into the conversation. I've researched this topic for the last four years. I know what I want to say. I know what I want to write. I've got the table of contents. I've got the chapters. I've got the interviews. 
but I'm inviting in with this conversation of here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And you'd be amazed. The speeches I've already done on this topic, I've got people coming up to me. Have you read this book? This sounds a lot like that book, or this is something you want. I'm getting enriched with just the ideas that I'm getting from my audiences around this topic, which by the way, I've been researching for the last four years. Well, that's one of the reasons that I love having guests like yourself on these podcasts, because I'm learning all the time. And I really hope that my listeners feel the same way, because I know that the wisdom that my guests share is priceless. David, our listeners love mistakes. Talk to us about book marketing mistakes, writing mistakes, just mistakes in general that you feel will help our listeners. I'm a big fan of, again, I got to attribute this to Alan Weiss. It's amazing how stupid I was two weeks ago, right? You name it, I've probably have made the mistake. Let me kind of quickly give you some of the highlights in each of those buckets. Number one, in writing it, many believe it has to be perfect. And I want to remind you of a saying that startups have that often says, if you're not embarrassed about what you're putting out in the market, you've waited too long. Version one is better than version none. The key is get it down on paper, get it written, get the first pass. I actually, I went to Positano, Italy. And if you know anything about that area, it's a city built on the side of a mountain and it's in Southern Italy and you overlook the ocean. And I was there for two weeks and I was able to write eight chapters of one of my books. And then I came back and it took me several other months to finish the remaining two. But the point is, get version one down on paper. It doesn't matter how awful it is or how bad it may sound or how irked you may be about the quality or less of, just get it down on paper, number one. Number two, I want my ideas to remain evergreen. So unfortunately, a lot of authors write a book once and they're done with it. I actually go back and with each subsequent edition, I update the content almost 30 to 40%. This year, I'm writing the third edition of Relationship Economics. The original one came out in 08. So one of the mistakes is thinking that you're done when the book is done because you ideally are thinking about that idea and you have a path to how to keep it evergreen, how to keep it updated, depending on others. And by that, I mean counting on others to kind of do this for you. I found over the years my own ghostwriter. I've actually had my own editor. I actually brought my own book cover design to my publisher. When I hand them a manuscript, it is researched, it is written, it is edited, there's the book cover. So I kind of go to them with all of that and that crop of people I really like working with. In terms of book marketing, I want to very quickly tell your audience about a painful story. I went and saw a CEO and on the corner of his office, Susan, I kid you not, there were probably a couple hundred books. And I said, what are those? He said, those are all the books that people send me what do you do with them? He said, oh, we just collect them. And then once a month, we donate them to Goodwill. I said, so you don't read any of those? He's like, no, 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 no. I said, well, what do you read? He said, well, what other CEOs recommend or people that I know and I like and I trust and I respect recommend, not just something that unsolicited shows up in the mail. I did this, right? I bought a thousand books, one of my books, and we shipped them out and I wrote nice letters and it, it didn't produce anything. Don't do that. Just tossing books over the wall just, I believe, dilutes your credibility. Give them a reason to want it. And again, the best way I know how to do that is word of mouth. 
I've spent uh, 50 grand with a book publicity firm. And Susan, without naming the firm, I might as well lit a fire to 50 grand because they produced nothing. And it was painful. They talked a big game and I'm not going to disparage anybody. Our expectations were completely misaligned. And I thought they were going to produce actually some publicity for the book and they did nothing. So I learned that lesson that I'm going to be my own best marketer. As I mentioned earlier, I include copies of my books with my speeches and with my coaching, with my training and with my, I'm an adjunct faculty at a couple of different universities. So I include the books there. I invest in airport marketing because my target audience are those business executives who travel and I can directly correlate. It's not cheap, but one executive picked up a copy in Denver, read what he wanted to. By the time he got to Boston, his assistant called me and said, we're getting 400 people together in Naples, Florida. Will you come talk? And that one speaking engagement paid for the book being in 600 airports for a month. That's a good market for me. International, get educated on international rights. As you speak more, as you do more work abroad, that's how you'll get international kind of exposure. But again, I could go on and on and on about after 10 books, all the mistakes I've made. You have to be willing to make some of those mistakes and you have to be willing to learn from some of those. That's how we grow. That's how we learn. And that's how we get better at this. David, there are a few things that you said that I absolutely love. First of all, the whole idea of being evergreen. That's one of my trademarks as well. I've written articles 20 years ago, which are still relevant today. Because as you said, you believe in evergreen, keeping things that everybody can use at any time, also that are practical and obvious. You also mentioned being your own best marketer. So many authors think that they have to hire somebody to do that work for them because they believe they're not marketers. They're writers and are frightened about this whole selling and marketing thing because it just makes them feel yucky. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, in my tough love approach, I'm going to tell them to get over it. Just like your own practice, you have to sell it. You have to deliver it. You have to, and again, some sage advice I got early on is you have to be the CEO of your own book. You may not want to do all of it yourself. I'm just telling you, after 10 books, I've learned that no one that I've found can market me and my books and my ideas as well as I can. And again, uh, credit to Alan Weiss, by putting your body of work out there, by writing articles. Now I write a column for Forbes. I write a column for Inc. I have a podcast. I, you know, I still do web meetings and webinars. And by doing this stuff, I put it on LinkedIn. One of the best places are LinkedIn articles and LinkedIn discussions, right? I belong to a whole bunch of groups and I create discussions in those groups. But by doing all these things, you create conversations around your topic. And I genuinely believe within the publishing world, it is a mistake to think of your book as an event. It should be a process. It should be a learning and growth process for you and your audience. And you need to think about that next book now and start planting those seeds with articles, with conversations, with speaking engagements, with tweets, and just kind of look and see what resonates with people. Look and see what And again, I've had other authors say, well, they're going to steal my idea. So what? It'll sharpen you. Iron sharpens iron. And that stealing is the sincerest form of flattery, right? And it forces you to continue to evolve and think about your ideas differently. So start talking about them. Start getting them out there. Start 
really gauging an audience and a discussion around the topics that you're interested in. One other tip for your authors, please don't write things you're not passionate about. Because if you're not excited about your topic, if you're not driven to learn and grow through your own topic, you won't have the sustainability to get through what is a marathon and not a sprint. Research, written, marketed, and seeing the impact from your ideas in the market is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And if you don't have the stamina for the marathon, write articles, write blogs, create booklets. But a book is really a journey and not an event. I also like to tell my authors that writing their book is not the end. In fact, there's a lot more stations to visit afterwards. Writing and publishing the book is just the beginning of the journey. Yes, the whole idea of passion. You couldn't have said it better. I believe that that's at the nucleus of everything. In order to sell a book, you need to be passionate about it. In order to talk about your topic, you have to be passionate about it because people can hear that passion and they're attracted to that. And that's what they buy into. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And again, I don't want to speak for others, but passion is fuel for me. So if I'm passionate about something, I was up at four o'clock this morning and I do some of my best thinking, best writing. I get up, I exercise, I clean up and I'm at my desk you know, early enough in the morning you know, before the kids get up, before the dogs go crazy and the day starts. And it's passion that allows you to do that, not if it's obligatory or you feel like you have to do it. Or, and again, the best way I can describe it is Think of somebody who runs a marathon. It's not just getting out and running. It's also your nutrition and it's being in great shape. And it's hundreds, if not thousands of miles they run to prepare for that actual marathon race. It's the same idea as you writing a book. Again, cannot be an event and your passion for getting your ideas captured, disseminated, shared, and others commenting on it is what drives me to write 10. And now, like I said, I'm working on number 11 this year. And the crazy part is I've got six, seven more ideas in my head. So we can expect, uh, what, another six or seven books to follow? All good things in moderation. Even too much (laughs) nor could be, you know, too much, right? I don't know. Oh, nor you want more. I think that rhymes nicely. David, If our listeners wanted to find more about you, your services, your podcast, talk to us about how they can do that. So the easiest thing is just if you Google my name, David Norn, that's N as in Nancy, O-U-R. That's the easiest way. You can go to norgroup.com. That's our website and sign up for, there's a lot of free tools and resources. And then I'm fairly active on various social networks and you can certainly learn about me and my work through those channels as well. David, if you were to leave our listeners with a golden nugget, that piece of information that they can just take with them after listening to this interview, what would that be? Common wisdom is in common practice. What you take for granted, others may not know, be aware of, have thought of, and you're doing yourself a disservice by keeping that in your head versus getting it down in a medium that can be shared and absorbed and applied by others. You've certainly demonstrated that common wisdom isn't common practice by sharing your wisdom so generously with us. David, thank you so much. 
And thank you all for taking time out of your precious day to listen to this interview. And I sincerely hope that it sparks some ideas you can use to sell more books. Here's wishing you much book marketing success. The time is now to take action and finally build your book selling empire. And the great news is that Susan is here to help you. Visit bookmarketingmentors.com and sign up for a free 15-minute book marketing strategy session with Susan. She'll help you discover your first steps to marketing and selling your book. Only those who take action are rewarded, so visit bookmarketingmentors.com and we'll see you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.